Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In our final episode of 2018, we'll be looking back at a tumultuous year in British politics. Over the next hour, we'll be reviewing the year for the Conservative and Labour parties, all things Brexit, and the one key issue that has dominated throughout Ireland. I'm delighted to be joined by an all-star lineup for this special episode. Our political editor, George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, our political correspondents Jim Picard and Nora Hughes, and our columnist Robert Shrimsley, plus some special guests, Grace Blakely from the IPPR Think Tank and Matthew O'Toole, a former Downing Street advisor. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning in 20. 2019, or you can even leave us a nice review on the iTunes podcast store. So let's begin with the one issue that I think everybody on the podcast will be talking about for the rest of their working lives. Yes, 2018 was the year that Brexit all came together or fell apart, depending on your perspective. We had those two big policy statements from Theresa May at Mansion House and Chequers, two failed summits in Salzburg and Brussels, and an awful lot of chunter about the backstop. And as the year ended, we had a deal, a deal that has still not been put to the House of Commons and looks unlikely to be voted on before the year ends or even early in 2019. George Parker, it's slightly depressing looking back on 12 months of how many podcasts, how many thousands of column inches you've written about Brexit for us to have a deal. But really, we still have no more certainty about the future than we really had this time last December. No, I think that's a fairly good summary, um, Seb. I mean, we've seen basically a sort of 12-month trudge through the mud of Brexit. As you say, a number of failed summits, a number of speeches where Theresa May sets out in bold primary colours, what her Brexit strategy is, and then spends the rest of the year trying to muddy the water and basically rub out some of those red lines. And at the end of the year, we're left in a situation where the deal she's agreed is still nowhere near being approved by the House of Commons. And where, frankly, I had a conversation with someone in number 10 asking what the strategy was. And it seemed to me at the end of the conversation, the strategy was Christmas. Simply Christmas means Christmas. Getting to the safety of the Christmas holidays in the hope that under some strange process over Christmas, Tory MPs will come back and be in a fresh frame of mind when they finally get to vote on this deal sometime around, we think, around the 16th and 17th of January. So, Alex Barker, it's really been a series of crab-like manoeuvres from the Prime Minister throughout the year, and the er text for Brexiters was her Lancaster House speech back in 2017, which defined a hard Brexit, i.e. leaving the single market, the customs union, the jurisdiction of the ECJ. That wasn't really going anywhere, and we had the joint report last December, which really set the tone for 2018, because that was the first time we heard about our best friend, the Irish backstop and the point at which a deal began to come together but a deal that a lot of Brexiters either didn't seem to read or understand and 2018 has just been a series of dawning realisations for them. Yeah and the lawyers here have been uh, extremely busy writing this you know doorstopper of a treaty 585 pages and looking back over the year what's remarkable to me is actually how little of that text was proposed and drafted by the UK. I mean, we've been through the negotiation drama, but in practice, the UK was always coming to the table at a point that was slightly too late. So after we had the joint report on the backstop in December, there was a period where the UK could have come in with ideas about the future relationship, about how the backstop should be used, But in practice, the cabinet was so divided that that only came very much later in the year. And by then, the EU was churning out drafts as it went along. And it's really been holding the pen on this negotiation for the whole period. 
because George and I hate to go back to this again, but that joint report was so important. I don't think we maybe realised the significance of that for two reasons. First of all, it was the point at which a clean, hard Brexit no longer became a reality, as has been borne out in the final deal. And second of all, it was the point at which Theresa May really lost the Democratic Unionist Party because they said we will not accept this backstop and called her bluff. And it's very easy to forget political situations once they've passed. But last December, Theresa May was under so much pressure to make progress and you began to hear the drumbeat of Brexiters saying you need to pull out of these talks because they're not going anywhere. She got that joint report. Sufficient progress, I believe, was the key Mm. phrase. And that really set the tone for what came next. So we then had Mansion House, which was, again, another softening. And in your news story, which I looked up quite recently, you described it as the softest form of hard Brexit, which began to outline this idea of having a customs area, of staying aligned in some rules and regulations. But at that point, the ERG, that's the European Research Group of Eurosceptics, we've heard so much from over the past 12 months, they began to say, we're not very happy with this idea. But again, they didn't really pull the emergency cord. Well, no, that's been the story the whole year, really. I mean, the joint report this time last year set the tone for what happened because it was an acceptance there would have to be a soft border on the island of Ireland. That meant that we had to have a frictionless trade, which took you down a whole series of routes which the Eurosceptics didn't like. And um, all the way down the year, they've been claiming they're about to put a halt to things. They tried, of course, with the vote of confidence, which they lost on. And now the Eurosceptics are pinning their hopes, I think, on the possibility that we just ran out of time. And in the end, it all becomes a bit too complicated for the House of Commons. And at the end, Theresa May is forced to take Britain out of the EU without a deal or a managed no deal, as they vaingloriously put it this week in the Cabinet. And this seems to be their strategy now, the idea that no deal is going to be possible, no majority of any form of Brexit in the House of Commons. Therefore, they now pin their hopes on Theresa May hanging on long enough to take Britain over the edge next March. The no deal thing's obviously been omnipresent throughout the year, Alex, but Chequers was a bit of a breakthrough for the Prime Minister. And again, that will, when the history of Brexit is written by some poor soul one day, this will go down as the key moment at which, first of all, she began to face down the Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party. And as we know, David Davis and Boris Johnson resigned from the Cabinet because they saw this as a compromise too far. But it actually got quite a warm reception from the EU, despite the fact that not much of Chequers has made it into the final withdrawal agreement. And the key proposal, this very complicated customs arrangement, has been poo-pooed by Brussels and experts everywhere. But when we look back on 2018 Brexit checkers, was the moment where the Prime Minister really pushed us again towards a slightly softer form of leaving the EU. That's right, but the significance of it was primarily in the context of UK politics. You've got to remember from the EU side, they had laid out their guidelines on the future relationship back in April. And that was well before Chequers. And actually, those guidelines are still the main document that will dictate what the mandate for the negotiators will be after Brexit. It's not even the political declaration. It's still the EU guidelines. And those were drafted before the UK had put down its views about what the future should be. When Chequers came, there was a relatively warm reception, but it was primarily because everyone in Brussels was just delighted to see a common position emerge from the UK that they could then drive through the negotiations with. And as we sort of stumbled on from that, George, there was just really not much progress throughout the summer. The checkers had been done. Mm. There was not a magical moment throughout the negotiations that unlocked the talks. And there was a lot of whispers that Boris Johnson was about to mount a leadership challenge. Those whispers obviously continued throughout the year. But at that point, Theresa May was looking probably the first time she began to look in serious trouble because she was not making any progress in negotiations. And Michel Barnier came out over and over again to say, we still need to solve the backstop issue. And you had Brexit saying, realising at that point over the summer, and I think it was Boris Johnson who came up with his phrase, chuck checkers and chuck the backstop in August. That was the point at which her deal really began to unravel before it even landed. And we had the two political party conferences and the position that Jeremy Corbyn lined up, which we're going to talk about later in the podcast, actually set out pretty much where we are, which is 
maintaining some sort of customs union, maintaining rules and regulations. But Mr Corbyn also put a second referendum on the table Mm. for the first time. He spent much of the rest of the year denying it ever since. But that was the result of Labour Party policy. And Theresa May went to her conference a couple of weeks later and essentially just had lots of nice Brexity things and said, we're taking back control. And of course, (laughs) we had Jeffrey Mufasa Cox who stood up and gave a very rip-roaring speech about Brexit. But up until that point... Again, nothing much happened till Salzburg. That's right. And um, it was a fairly turbulent autumn for Theresa May. And uh, she went into the Salzburg informal summit in September after a pretty tricky conference season. with The party divided and, as you say, Boris Johnson writing the same column in the Daily Telegraph week after week, hinting that he might be able to launch a leadership challenge. And she went to Salzburg hoping that the EU would be able to offer her some assistance. And this was going to be the moment when the EU lent the beleaguered Prime Minister a hand as she tried to deliver on some of the promises she made at Chequers. And instead of which, it turned into an acrimonious bum fight. Theresa May cornered in a very hot press briefing room on the margins of the summit, probably the smallest room in the conference centre, and basically being forced to face the fact that she'd been humiliated by the EU. And from then on, it sort of, she limped on through the autumn, but it was in the autumn that her problems really started to crystallise. I think you're right. And that thing about the summit, Alex, we saw that again, actually, just last week, that it was not quite a repeat of the Salzburg, but when Theresa May went to the European Council, as I said last Friday, she was again hoping for some warm words, hoping for some help. And instead, she was described allegedly by Jean-Claude Juncker as nebulous. And the PM again lost some political capital with her fellow leaders, it appeared, and came back home in a weaker position. So twice this year, the PM has not done particularly well at these summits of getting other EU leaders on board. Why is that? You could say it's partly the Prime Minister's style, but I think it's probably a deeper misjudgment that goes back right to the beginning of Brexit, where the common view in London was that there were in the institutions of the EU kind of ideologues who were trying to uh, protect the order. And if you actually managed to get a hearing with the presidents and prime ministers around Europe, that they would take a softer approach, they'd understand the economic interests more clearly, and they'd see that ultimately Brexit had to be managed in a pragmatic way. And the two moments when the Prime Minister has taken her pitch directly to EU leaders with either new proposals or really new demands, the EU leaders took a harder approach rather than a softer one. And I think the importance of being the country out of the room, of Theresa May making her pitch and then leaving, can't be underestimated through this process. The psychology of being out of the room is so important in terms of how these discussions have then developed between EU leaders. Really important point Alex makes there, and it's a foretaste of what will happen should we ever get to the point where we're negotiating a future relationship, when Britain actually will be a third country. She won't even be in the room at all. And you can start to see how weak the British negotiating position will turn out to be. And probably the two best things that you could have read this year, not necessarily the 585 withdrawal agreement, (laughs) unless you're very well versed in these things, was two lectures by Sir Ivan Rogers, who was the UK's former ambassador to the EU, who has delivered some home truths about the situation, much along the line Alex has talked about. And Sir Ivan was unceremoniously left the government because no one was really listening to his advice under Theresa May's old regime during the first year. But it kind of predicts exactly where we've ended up and all the things that he said. But the other thing I think we've learned, George, this year is where we are now. So the deal emerged in November was very much as we thought it was going to be with the backstop, with the money, with the Stansdale transition and this 26 page future political declaration that means it could be Canada, it could be Norway, it could even be a bit checkers if you fancy that sort of thing. And it landed exactly as we expect it would have been, which was very badly with Eurosceptics that the middle ground of the Conservative Party sort of said, well, fine, this will do, this is the kind of deal we can live with. But the thing that I think we probably were taken aback with was how bad it landed with the Labour Party, because throughout the year we thought there was going to be this block of 30 or so Labour MPs who would save the Prime Minister's deal. But for whatever reason, the deals landed particularly badly with Eurosceptics. Obviously, we had the leadership chance, but also with the Labour Party. Why is that, do you think? Well, I think the Labour Party looked at the deal and then quickly realised that it appeared to be dead in the water because of the extremely hostile reaction of the Eurosceptics. And then, indeed, 
joined by some pro-Europeans in the Conservative Party. And I think at that point, those Labour MPs who were considering voting for the deal because they wanted to be true to the views expressed by their constituents and leave constituencies and to make sure that Brexit actually happened, they thought, well, I'm not going to put my career on the line and uh, vote with Theresa May if it's all for nothing, if the deal's going down in any case. So you end up in a situation where once everyone thought the deal is going down, nobody in a way had any interest in voting for it. So you had a whole load of pro-Europeans who suddenly thought, hang on a sec, if this deal goes down, there's a possibility that no Brexit and a second referendum come into view. Eurosceptics, it's going down anyway, we might as well vote against it. And there was always a sense in the back of everyone's mind that there was another vote coming along not far behind this. And so in a way, the first vote became almost a free hit for people across party lines. And that's why we didn't have the vote. So we reached the year end, Alex, with the deal is there. The deal sits there until March the 28th, if the UK chooses to take it at some point. We've obviously got a lot more talk now than I think probably anybody expected of a second referendum or softer Brexit or even a no deal Brexit. As George said, that's been the big topic of conversation in Westminster this week with the cabinet ramping up preparations. Now, I know how much we love to do predictions on this podcast, but I'm not going to ask you for 2019, just for the first three months, because that's the key thing up until Brexit Day. Alex and George, what do you think is going to happen? There won't be a Brexit on March 29th, I don't think. In most of the scenarios you're looking at, the need for more time is pretty evident. Even if the Prime Minister is able to push through this deal in mid-January, the fight that would then follow on the legislation to actually implement this withdrawal treaty will be brutal. And there may be amendments that leave the UK non-compliant from the first day. And that will take time to unfold. And if you need a renegotiation, you certainly need more time. The only real possibility of leaving on March 29th seems to be a no-deal exit. And even in that scenario, you could imagine both sides saying, well, let's move the date by a month or two to give us a bit more time to prepare. So there's my prediction. And George? I think that's not a bad prediction. Alex and I were sitting in the Fiorentina restaurant in Brussels after the most recent um, European Council meeting. And another journalist came across and asked us for our predictions. And we scratched our heads and looked slightly vague, I think it'd be fair to say. I think Alex's prediction is right. I mean, even in the unlikely event that Theresa May gets a deal through in the third week of January, the amount of time available for legislation is extremely tight. I thought it was significant. There were several questions in the House of Commons this week about the extension of Article 50. Theresa May didn't explicitly rule it out. She said it wasn't a good idea and all the rest of it. But I still think that is the most likely outcome. You know, there are some people in the cabinet who are pushing for a so-called managed no-deal exit. I think or that... managed glide path, as we heard this week, whatever that means. <laughs> whatever that is. It's an oxymoron. There will not be a manageable no-deal exit. It will be chaotic and it will be the EU calling the shots. And I think if that was to happen or about to happen, I think the cabinet would split in two and you would see a series of walkouts by cabinet ministers. So the answer is we don't really know. I mean, I think we're going to hear an awful lot more about a second referendum. I think that's for sure. Whether we ever get to it is another question. I suspect there may be a sort of second wind for Theresa May's deal simply because all the other options look so bad. But I don't think I'd be quite so bold as I have been in the past to predict that common sense would prevail and all sides will rally around Theresa May's deal because at the moment that doesn't look all that likely. And very boringly, I'm going to throw my prediction on top of both of yours as well, which is, I think, an extension of Article 50 seems very likely. Everybody I've spoken into Whitehall says the planning is there, be that by weeks or months or potentially even longer. But the certainty that we leave on the 29th of March next year no longer looks like a given. You're listening to FT Politics, the podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. For the Conservative Party, 2018 is a year it will likely want to forget. It found itself on the verge of falling apart. Theresa May faced a leadership challenge. Its MPs have argued and bickered constantly in public, social media and through some lovely anonymous briefings. And on top of all that, the future of the country's oldest political party looks to be something in doubt. So Robert Shrimsley... This theory where you started writing political column for the FT and many of these columns have been focused on the ups and downs of the Tory party. And 
it's certainly leaving the year in a much worse state than when it started. And you've also written a very good essay on the 30 years war about Europe, which I guess really comes to the heart of why the Tories find themselves in such a total mess at the moment. Yeah, I think the one thing one has to remember about what's going on in the Conservative Party is, as I wrote in that long piece, this split over Europe has been running on for a very long time. And the party moves ever more Eurosceptic. So it sloughs off, you know, the most moderate pro-Europeans every 10 years. It weeds them out. And then the people who thought they were mainstream Eurosceptics find out that they're the moderates and the party keeps moving one way. So I don't know that the split within the Conservative Party is any greater. I think the two things that have changed, number one is obviously the stakes that they're playing for are so much higher. And number two is quite simply they have no majority. If you look at the two periods where things have been most fierce, they're under John Major over Maastricht and they're now. And the fundamental point is because there is no majority, the leader can't afford to push a faction of her party aside as easily as she could if she had the kind of majorities that Margaret Thatcher enjoyed or that David Cameron managed to have when he was in coalition with the Lib Dems. So I think the ferocity of the split probably isn't that much greater but the stakes they're playing for and the fact she has no majority make it seem worse. Well, Law Hughes, the Nadia for the party was clearly the challenge towards Theresa May, which came just a couple of weeks ago. And this was after months and months of speculation that they were going to move against her and the crucial 48 letters of no confidence would be written. And we almost, as it turns out, had that in November. But then people withdrew their letters and then we finally passed that threshold when Theresa May delayed the meaningful vote on her Brexit deal. So in some ways, it wasn't a surprise that this happened, but it it was still pretty damaging and Theresa May saw 117 of her own MPs vote against her, which doesn't bode particularly well for her future. No, I don't think she saved the day. I think she survived that day and she's effectively bought herself more time because now they can't challenge her for another year. And as part of winning over some of those MPs, she had to promise that she was not going to lead them into the next election, which is actually a pretty big deal and again in normal times that might have been a bigger story on the day but it ended up being paragraph five that she actually committed to stepping down I always sort of assumed that she knew that she would have to post Brexit and that the party needs a new leader that can set things in a different direction so it was damaging for her and it it felt as though it did have to happen they had their moment and it's now fascinating to watch the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, who came out immediately after the vote saying she needed to go down to see the Queen and hand in her resignation, now pledging support, partly because they know that they played their cards and they lost the game. I do think one key moment in the course of the year was the resignation of Amber Rudd, who of course is now back in the Cabinet, and the elevation of Sajid Javid to Home Secretary, which I think for the first time gave the mainstream of the Conservative Party a clear sense that there was a front-runner to replace her if you didn't want one of the hardline Brexiters, Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab or whatever. Now, that doesn't mean Sajid Javid would actually win if it happened, but it gave the mainstream chunk of the party someone they could coalesce around. And I think that really changed the dynamic for me in the way that her leadership was viewed. And she's been very lucky with her enemies, Robert, as Laura was just saying, that the ERG, the European Research Group, which, as I think somebody joked quite recently, isn't very interested in Europe, doesn't do much research and isn't much of a group either now. This is a sort of gang of 80 Conservative MPs or so who gossip on WhatsApp and plots for an ever harder Brexit and plot to try and get rid of Theresa May. They've dominated the news a lot and it's always struck me that there are other factions within the Conservative Party that are arguably more influential for example the Brexit Delivery Group which is led by Simon Hart, little known MP, is the biggest gang of people which will help the government win through votes but the ER, it feels like this has been the year of which they've dominated, been on TV a lot, notably Jacob Rees-Mogg and Steve Baker. Why are they so powerful so potent is it just simply the lack of majority i I think it is the lack of majority but i think you also answered your own question one of the reasons they seem so potent is because they're on tv a lot and i think that the nature of modern politics the nature of modern media 24-hour news channels twitter is that people can command an audience in a way they simply couldn't before and if you are in the middle of very very delicate and important negotiations where a lot of things are going on in secret although less and less seems to go on in secret in this government but a lot of things are happening behind the scenes and you have people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, like Steve Baker, whoever it is, who are very, very happy to pop on television all of the time, then they are going to take a lot of the oxygen of the debate. So one thing that Robert mentioned, Laura, is the leadership question. So now we know Mrs May is not going to fight in 2022, which I think actually we all knew that. It was just confirmed it for real. She's going to go at some point. It could be next year, particularly if her Brexit deal fails to get through and she loses what little authority she has left. Although a former number 10 staffer said to me, you know, she will cling on by her absolute nails to the bitter end, which is something to look forward to. But 
you've got Amber Rudd, you've got Sajid Javid, and of course Boris Johnson as well, who resigned from the government in the middle of the year and has been plotting away, but is clearly angling towards some kind of leadership bid. What's your sense on what's going to happen with that question? Will it be next year or will it be further in the future? I think it will be next year. I think it should be quite soon after Brexit, purely for the fact that we know, and a lot of Tory MPs are concerned, that the Conservative Party have just been associated with Brexit. They are the Brexit Party. Theresa May's legacy will purely be Brexit. She hasn't managed to achieve in almost any of the domestic reforms she would have wanted to, and they know that they have to rebrand. The question is how they rebrand. Do they want to rebrand under a Eurosceptic, or do they want to set the tone with a new leader who perhaps doesn't bang on about Europe the whole time. With the Boris question, I wouldn't underestimate how many young Conservative MPs would be furious, would even consider leaving the party if he became their leader. I think Boris is important, Robert, not just because he's one of the few sort of colourful characters people like to talk about in politics, but he is very Marmite for the Conservative Party. There's some people who absolutely adore him and he gave this rally speech at the Conservative Party conference where 2,000-odd people turned up to go and see him speak on a huge domestic agenda which would probably form the base of his leadership campaign if and when that comes. But as Laura said, there's a lot of other Conservatives, particularly the Scottish Tory MPs, people like Heidi Allen, people like Dominic Grieve, who really don't like Boris and say they would resign the whip. There's talk of 20 MPs doing that if he became leader. Yeah, we'll see, won't we? I don't really believe people, when people say we'll all resign the whip if so-and-so wins, because the first thing they do is reach out and you've turned a page. The one thing I would say about the leadership is that if as many people, whenever it comes, and I'm inclined to agree with Laura that next year looks as good or better as any, if as many people put their hats into the ring as we think they're going to, you've got something like 317 Conservative MPs. If 10 or 15 people put their hats into the ring, then you have a lot of people securing relatively small vote shares in the early round. And it could be that actually whether you get 17 votes in the first round or whether you get 23 is the determination of whether you go through to the next. And I think there's an awful lot of space for slip-ups and unexpected things to happen. So you may think that Boris Johnson, for example, is the Brexit frontrunner. But if he happens to finish a few votes behind somebody else just because people have not got their calculations right or maybe one of the other factions decide to try and knock him out early. It's very hit and miss. I think there's a lot of luck involved in the early stages. Yes, and Dominic Raab is someone else as well who has clearly got leadership ambitions and didn't deny that law and he essentially said that he wants to be seen as the Brexit candidate and if the Stop Boris campaign is as well organised as people running it want you to think it is, then the situation Robert just painted could definitely happen and Boris might not actually get there. I don't know about Dominic Raab. I don't know if he commands the the support of a lot of MPs if he's got the charisma to do the job. I think Sajid Javid has a really good chance of this. I think Jeremy Hunt also is clearly very, very ambitious. But people are sceptical over his sudden reformation and conversion to the Brexit cause. People don't buy that. But you could also see a young, unheard of Tory MP, which I always actually thought was more likely someone like James Cleverley or Vicky Atkins that most people might not have heard of coming through and doing a David Cameron with the last leadership election who would have predicted that one comment from Andrea Leadsom about her being a mother would completely destabilise the race and put May in front in these crazy times you have no idea what will happen I think Laura's absolutely right and I certainly wouldn't discount the possibility of one of those people who's barely heard of by the wider public coming through I think the other point you talked about a Brexiter candidate I think that's potentially quite a dangerous position for a candidate to be in. We will have had Brexit, presumably, by then. We don't know, but there's a reasonable bet that Brexit will have happened by the time this leadership contest occurs. And although there will be more stages to come, I think pitching yourself as one faction in a major divide is a mistake. I think the victory will go to somebody who suggests they can be a healer. So, for example, we've already heard the odd noises about how Boris Johnson would actually try to be a one-nation leader. He would try to reach out the other way. So I think it's fine to say we want a pure Brexiter, but if that person tries to stay pure and not reach out, I don't think they'll make it. I think this is the point you mentioned earlier, Laura, about what does the Conservative Party want to be? And my sense, speaking to some posters and MPs as well, is that the party and Brexit are now so intertwined you will not separate the two out and that the Conservatives are not gaining any back any of the Remain voters or any of the Metropolitan voters that they lost in 2016. In fact, the only gains they are making are more affluent Leave voters and less affluent Leave voters in the Labour heartlands. They've actually gone back to Labour would be my sense of where we are. So in a way, it has to embrace Brexit, whatever that looks like. And if we end up having a second referendum, which we talked about earlier in the podcast... 
that would be very difficult for the party because there would be some people like Amber Rudd, you'd imagine, who would want to campaign for Remain. You'd have some people like Theresa May who would back Mrs Maisie. I can't think of who else would. And then you've got MPs who are going to go health for leather behind a no-deal Brexit as well. And the last referendum was difficult for the Conservative Party. Another one would be even more so. Yeah, I think probably all leadership contenders are quietly praying that this all just goes away and that we get a deal in the same way that the Labour Party are just praying that this all just goes away so that nobody has to come out and have a firm position on anything because it's so polarising. Brexit, I think, has been toxic for the Conservative Party in so many ways. I think it will have put off a lot of young people. And I'm always amazed at some of my kind of friends or generation, young city types who look at Jeremy Corbyn and message me during Labour Party conference saying, oh, he's talking a lot of sense. And these are young, you know, you would assume Tory voters coming from Conservative voting families. The Tories have a real problem. And there are a lot of MPs that know exactly that. Yeah, pitching yourself as a Brexiteer is probably not actually a very clever thing to do. I think there is a bigger issue for the Conservatives, again, which Laura's just touching on, which is that although they're not going to shake off the notion of being the Brexit party, they have got to get past it a bit. And they've got to start talking about what it is they're actually for, what it means to be a Conservative in this era. Because an awful lot of them, particularly on the Brexit side of the party, have a belief in lower taxes, in a smaller state, in reducing public spending. And everything we're seeing suggests that is not where the voters are at all. If anything, the public has shifted a bit more towards higher taxes, more public spending. So the Conservatives are going to have to refashion their whole idea of what it is to be a Conservative and what their offering is going to be. And to my mind, the person who, when we do have a leadership contest, articulates this best is the one that's going to end up winning. And you have seen some interesting voices talk about this. Liz Truss, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, has become very prominent this year, not least thanks to her Instagram feed. But she's also talking a lot about core Conservative principles, about low taxation, about helping enterprise, helping business. That's one clear route. Sajid Javid obviously trying to paint himself as the liberal-minded reformer. Amber Rudd will put herself down as the sort of continuity Cameroon candidate. But then you will have all the other people as well from the other side of the party. Just finally to you both, to ask them the split question, because this is now being talked up more and more, the possibility that there will be a Corn Laws moment for the Conservative Party over Brexit, because it used to be that the party agreed on sort of everything but Europe, but now Europe has become the defining issue, and you wrote about this this year, Robert. Do you think the Conservative Party will still be holding together by this time next Christmas? Yes, I think I do. I think that it's always possible a few people will split away. I think if Brexit didn't happen, I think it's possible that a more meaningful chunk could drift off. But I think if you assume that it is going to happen, then the potential for the split is quite small. Five or six MPs, possibly, if a new centre party emerges. But my instinct is that the Conservative Party probably will hold together. And finally, Laura? My instinct is the same. and I, But I actually think if people were to break away, it, it would be the really hardline Eurosceptics because there is a space that was occupied by Nigel Farage and the UK Independence Party that doesn't really exist so much anymore. Could you see the hardliners going off and trying to do something else probably there might be some Tory MPs that might be quite relieved if they did go disappear <laughs> for a while but I, I, I think ultimately they will remain as a whole and, and get through this but right now it's pretty toxic and also we've, we always forget Tories love one thing above all else and that is power and clinging on to power so I think even as these things get more fraught and more complicated they will find a way to bring themselves back together and then one last thing I forgot to mention as well will the Conservatives still be in power do you think this time next year? <sighs> I think probably yes. But one of the things I've noticed when people ask me what's going to happen in Brexit is that I can construct a very convincing argument for any number of possibilities at the moment. (laughs) It is completely impossible to predict where things are going to be. On balance, I would bet they'll still be there, but I wouldn't bet very much. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And Labour are not doing what they should be doing at this moment in time. And I, I don't think there are any Tory MPs that want a general election. And that's the main thing. There's no new leader or Theresa May who I think would push for that to happen. But we could just stumble into it. You much like know. we could also stumble into Famous a no deal words. Brexit or any other number of scenarios. You're listening to FT Politics from the Financial Times. It was a slightly better year for the Labour Party than the Conservatives. Jeremy Corbyn didn't become Prime Minister, as he predicted, and his party's still not quite ahead in the polls. But his Brexit stance has softened a little, and support for a second referendum was put on the table for the first time. But Mr Corbyn is totally secure at the top of the party, and were there to be a general election next year, then most people in Westminster think he would find himself in Downing Street. So Jim Picard, what kind of year do you think it's been 
for the Labour Party. We've had some big policy announcements, which we'll come on to in a bit, and a bit of change in Brexit. But really, it's pretty much as it was at the end of 2017. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start by being argumentative. You said that everyone's presumption was that if there was a general election, then Jeremy Corbyn would be in Downing Street. Most likely, I said, said, said most likely. I don't even know if it's most likely. I think this is the interesting thing about them, is that even though the Tory government is in this terrible shambles and they're ripping each other apart, and they clearly look like two parties within one party, there doesn't seem to be much of a surge behind Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party at the moment, as we know they're behind in the polls. Obviously, the caveat to that is that in the heat of a general election campaign, like happened last year, anything can happen, especially without the sort of filter of the biased media and the way Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald would see it. They get much more unfiltered coverage, especially from broadcasters, and that seemed to play to their advantage last year. But in general, they seem a bit confused over Brexit. They're neither fish nor fowl. They're not really making hardcore Remainers happy. They're not particularly making hardcore Brexiteers happy. And yes, their programme, I think when people sit down and look at it, their domestic programme is quite attractive to a lot of people, especially after years of austerity. But are they getting much cut through, question mark, and are there kind of emerging Corbynistas who are sort of rising stars that weren't there a year ago? Not necessarily. And, and you're seeing John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, taking an awful lot of weight on his shoulders because he appears to be far and away the best media performer and the sort of most serious of the lot of them. And people you might have thought would have come through by now, like Rebecca Long-Bailey or Laura Pidcock or Richard Burgon, they're not really making a fantastic impression, is my sense of things. Grace Blakely, how have you seen the year for the Labour Party? You work at the IPPR and you write for the New Statesman and as someone who is vaguely sympathetic to the Corbyn <laughs> cause, if it's fair to say. Do you think, just looking back at it, it's been a good one for Labour under Corbyn? I do, and perhaps unsurprisingly I'm going to disagree with Jim here. I think what you saw the last election is that Labour, Corbyn perform extremely well under campaigns. That general election saw the biggest turnaround in the opinion polls that has been recorded in history. I don't think this is surprising given the kind of reception that Corbyn and others get from the mainstream media. But also, you know, Corbyn just responds very well to being on the campaign trail, to going and doing big speeches, big rallies. And obviously, in a general election environment, people start thinking a little bit more about what's in their interests. And, um, you know, as we've been hearing after eight years of austerity, after 10 years of wage stagnation and a kind of general economic malaise that's starting to really impact people all across the country. People are starting to think about giving Corbynism a try. It's that famous Milton Friedman quote, isn't it? That during a crisis or a kind of period of stagnation, people kick up and run with the ideas that are lying around. And I think Corbyn is in many ways winning that argument on the economy. People know that this silly comparison between the state and the household isn't working anymore, that we can and should be spending more to invest and that we should be taxing the wealthy and, and corporations and these sorts of things much more in order to do that. So I think that it's likely that if there was a general election, Corbyn would end up in number 10. So the just... question I would ask Grace would be why his, his personal ratings seem so bad. And I know that opinion polls aren't perfect. We've all discovered that in recent years. They certainly are very bad at predicting things. But you know, Jeremy Corbyn, only one in five people seem to think that he'd make the best leader. Mayor's somewhat better and a third of the public don't really know either way. I mean, he has an incredibly strong following among his core supporters but yet it's not translating into into a national mass appeal yet, is it? I think what you have to look at is, you know, when we're looking at these opinion polls, you have to think about how people are making these decisions and what's influencing their answer to these questions. And for a lot of people, you know, the vast majority of people who are very into politics, what's going to influence how they answer these questions is basically the last couple of things that they heard. And when the last couple of things that they heard is Jeremy Corbyn's done all these terrible things, he wants to steal your children and lock them away or, you know... So this is the your... media you're talking about? Yeah, it is. You know, it's all across the media. There are very, very few places in which he gets a fair rap and in which people are talking about his economic policies or how a Corbyn government might make a difference to ordinary people. It's very much scare stories or silly things like whether or not he said someone was a stupid woman. This is what the media wants to focus on for whatever reason. And so I think that's having a really big influence on the answers to these opinion polls. I think in coming up to a general election, as I was saying, people would take much more time to consider how 
his policies would affect them themselves. And also we'd be able to have a much wider societal debate about the uh, economic policies implemented by the Conservative government and whether or not those are right for the country. And I think that would come out with a resounding no. Because there is this sort of split, Jim, as Grace was alluding to, that when you look at the policies of Corbyn's Labour Party, they all poll individually pretty well and people like the sound of them. But when it comes to that leadership question it's not quite so clear-cut. And I think that one thing we have seen this year is the growing distance between John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn. I think I wrote a column about this and John McDonnell personally called me fake news in response (laughs) to it. And you have seen that tension grow over the past 12 months. And you interviewed John McDonnell at the beginning of the year where he sort of set out a lot more about himself. And it feels like he's getting a better press. And on Brexit, there's also a clear difference there that he says it's almost inevitable we're going to have a second referendum. That's not the line of Jeremy Corbyn's office, is it? I think you have to unpick this slightly because I covered the Ed Miliband regime period of five years from 2010 to 2015. And what was quite clear during that period was that individual Ed Miliband policies did poll rather well. You know, the energy price freeze was popular. Somewhat higher taxes on business to pay for a better welfare state was fairly popular. And lots of other kind of interventionist measures did get good ratings, but somehow the whole package didn't rate so highly. And I I think there's an element of the public thinking whether this is fair or not. They hear lots of money being spread around, whether it's getting rid of tuition fees or money for social care or money for the NHS, all these things that Labour wants to do. And voters can be quite suspicious and they take the view that you don't get out for now. And therefore, they can be quite susceptible to the Tory argument that this can only be funded by horrendous tax rises and secret tax rises and all the rest of it. Now, I've always taken the view that they were actually quite open about their tax measures in the 2017 election and that they wrote down on paper £48 billion a year of tax rises that would pay for extra spending on the welfare state. So I, I never particularly believed those Tory black hole accusations at the time, even if you could sort of make different questions about whether the state could afford to borrow as much money as they were promising to borrow for capital infrastructure spending. I mean, looking at your question about they've been doing a lot of serious policy this year, I mean, this is perhaps another topic of conversation, but I think what's really interesting is they've been rolling out all sorts of interesting radical policy, which has been a bit under the radar because Brexit has consumed so much of everyone's bandwidth. And in normal times, the country would be having quite a big debate about a lot of this labour policy. For example, the plan to take up to 10% of every big company in the country over 10 years and hand it to the workers. Normally, that would be a really big thing that the public would be aware of. I don't know how much traction that's had at all. Yeah, this is an interesting point, Grace, because if you look, two of the big announcements that stick in my mind, one was the shared equity thing that Mm. Jim was just talking about. The other one was looking at breaking up the big four auditors. And I think the FT has given those both quite a lot of coverage. But generally, the focus has been on the leadership question about Jeremy Corbyn and on Brexit as well. And you must see that their position is not exactly clear. It is quite cakeism that they want to have all the upsides of Theresa May's Brexit policy and none of the downsides. And that gives endless opportunity people to say, well, hang on a minute on the big issue of the day. There was an important set of negotiations since the Second World War. Labour's all over the place, so maybe that's why they don't get covered. I think it's fair to say that the discussion of Brexit has overshadowed a lot of discussion around economics and that that has been unfortunate because... As you said, most of Labour's policies on the economy poll extremely well. I think if we'd had the last two years talking about that rather than simply talking about Brexit, speculating over the leadership, all these sorts of things, then Labour would already be doing better in the polls. Again, you know, this whole question about the polls, about Ed Miliband's policies polling better. Yes, fine. But what Ed Miliband didn't have that Corbyn does is this base that are incredibly enthusiastic about him, that will go out on the doorstep, that will rile people up. And that actually we've seen as of 2017 makes a huge difference in elections. There's a line that mass mobilisation, social movements, etc. don't make a difference to influencing people's behaviour. But we now know that that is categorically false and that actually that kind of groundswell of support has the capacity to really win an election for people. And that is what Corbyn does have. And that's what his radicalism gets him. On the Brexit question, I actually think that Corbyn and McDonnell have played this remarkably well. They've adhered to the main rule of politics, which is don't interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. And Theresa May, ever since the very beginning of these negotiations, since she decided or attempted to appease the ER, 
ERG. It was very obvious that she was going to come back from Brussels with a deal that would not be acceptable to the vast majority of Parliament. Corbyn knew that, McDonald knew that, most people in the media knew that as well. And now we've got to crunch time. It's taken her a lot of time to get here, which hasn't left us with a good amount of time to deal with this. But now Corbyn and McDonald are coming in and saying, look, May is incapable. She is being held to ransom by extremists on the right of her party. This is something that we need to negotiate. We need to be able to go back to Brussels and deliver something sensible. But when um, you say just- something sensible, the issue with this is that you know, if Labour said, we're going to stay in the single market in customs union, which would be what a lot of Labour MPs would like, that's very clear. But the policy that they've put forward, the so-called jobs first Brexit, is essentially May's deal, but staying in a customs union. Well, I think a lot of it would come out in the negotiations. You know, May's flipped from a huge number of different positions from the beginning of the negotiations to the end. And what Corbyn has done is lay out a set of priorities that he would have gone into negotiations with the EU in order to try and obtain. And whatever deal comes out of that, it will be based on those clear priorities, which are very popular. So by this argument that Labour's all kind of hot air, I think they're being strategic, which is ironically what most of the media kind of accused them of not being able to do. So what I think the issue is that most commentators can't get their head around the idea that someone like Jeremy Corbyn is capable of playing the game this well. Jim? Yeah, I mean, I I agree to some extent that this accusation, people saying he should do the motion of no confidence straight away, they all know that it would fail and therefore he would end up being pushed further towards the second referendum position where he doesn't really want to be. Whether it's a brilliant strategy or not, I do think there is something a bit new Labour about basically just trying to hold together this coalition of leave voters in the, you know, it's a cliche, the Northern Midlands heartlands and the urban liberal remain voters. It's not easy to straddle those two tribes who have very different outlooks on an awful lot of things. And Corbyn and his team are trying to do it, and they don't get probably enough credit for that. I think Grace was talking earlier about how, you know, if only Labour was in there negotiating with Brussels and they'd get this different deal. And the whole notion of Jeremy Corbyn, Prime Minister, negotiating our current Brexit deal is sort of fancy politics in that they aren't going to get a general election because to do so they have to get this motion of no confidence through Parliament. I interviewed John McDonnell this afternoon, 10 minutes, he was on a train journey somewhere, we spoke on the phone and I said to him, you're not aware of a single MP from the DUP or the Tories who will back this, are you? And he effectively admitted no. And therefore, they've talked about this motion of no confidence that will trigger this general election, but it is literally just a holding position which gives them something to talk about, but they know in their hearts that there isn't going to be a general election unless something goes horribly wrong on the other side. You're quite right to suggest that. We now know we're in a position where we know that this simply isn't going to happen, um, which is why we're at this crisis moment where the level of uncertainty that people are reporting has skyrocketed, particularly among businesses who are now in the position of, are we going to crash out with a no deal, which I still think is relatively unlikely, or are we going to have this incredibly divisive, potentially ruinous second referendum, which will probably deliver another result to leave anyway. But you can hardly blame Jeremy Corbyn for the fact that we've ended up in this situation where May can't either control her own party and get her deal through, equally is basically a sitting duck and and can't really do anything else. And you've got these MPs all with various different factional leaders trying to herd cats towards their preferred outcome. I think people looking from the outside see it as just something as a farce, which Theresa May only exacerbated with her comments the other day when she was basically comparing Parliament to a pantomime, to which Jeremy Corbyn's silly people whatever you want to have heard comments were a response. But we are in this situation now where it ends up We don't know, but it has very little to do with what Jeremy Corbyn does or doesn't do. It's all to do with what the Conservative Party and the kind of divisions they've had over Europe for the last several decades, how those pan out. The really interesting bit, I think, at this moment in time, the question that we don't know the answer to is whether Labour, when they say that they will block no deal, whether they are being 100% sincere and whether they have worked out the mechanism to do that. So Keir Starmer addressed the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, a few weeks ago on the Monday evening, and he said, you know, don't worry... We've worked out all sorts of parliamentary mechanisms that I won't go into right now, which could allow us to block no deal. And you've had all sorts of senior people like Corbyn and McDonald saying, don't worry, we're not going to let this happen. But there are an awful lot of people in Parliament, MPs saying, what are these mechanisms? They're untested, they're uncharted. Would they really work? And you've got people like David Gork, the moderate Tory Justice Secretary, who we interviewed last Friday, saying, do we, the Tory government, really think that Labour mean it when they say they'll block no deal? Or actually, do they see the potential economic chaos from no deal as being a political opportunity? Because if it leads to a recession, which seems reasonably likely if you believe economists, then it creates a situation where the public 
which is currently a bit ambivalent about Corbyn. They like some things about him and they dislike other things about him. Could that be the opportunity for Labour to get the wind in its sails in terms of politics? And so you can't blame Tory MPs for being a little bit suspicious of whether Labour actually mean it when they say they'll block no deal. Well, firstly, you know, whether or not Tory MPs trust Labour MPs, that's uh, it's hardly a relevant question. The question about whether or not basically Corbyn and McDonnell are accelerationists who want this big crash to happen so they can take advantage of it is, I think, a fairly unfair and cynical interpretation of their moves. Ultimately, they have to be able to put contingency plans in place for whatever they anticipate will happen. And again, what will happen is at this point not in their hands to determine. We are in this Christmas period where basically Theresa May has sent her MPs away to say, if you don't vote through my deal, then you'll have either the chaos of a no deal or the chaos of a second referendum. And she's anticipating they'll come back and give her that support. What happens there is determined by what happens within the Tory party. So I think it's a bit rich, really, to say that Corbyn and McDonnell are waiting for this massive crisis they can take advantage of it. But I don't think it's completely eccentric to say that these guys have in the past portrayed themselves as revolutionary type characters with Marxist ideals, you know, waiting for history's big opportunity. I mean, it's not surprising that some people might take those comments possibly made a long time ago at face value. And they were maybe achieving a socialist utopia through unfortunate contemporary events is something that they wouldn't necessarily consider the end of the world. And finally, I just want to ask you both in one quick sentence, are we going to see Prime Minister Corbyn next year, Jim? I don't think so, but I, I don't predict anything. And Grace? Difficult question. With the fixed-term parliament act, you need a lot of MPs to vote for a general election. But when the next general election comes, I think Corbyn will win. And finally, the topic that has really dominated the year... Ireland. And that in itself is something of a surprise because Britain has given so little thought to Brexit's implications for the Irish border that it was barely mentioned during the 2016 referendum. But throughout 2018, the issue of how to maintain a soft border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic has vexed all of the political parties and it has shaped everything from the form of the eventual Brexit deal to Theresa May's leadership challenge. Amanda Green, we've talked a lot about the Irish border question and of course we'll come on to the delightful backstop in a moment but just on the wider topic it is just striking if you think for the past couple of years Ireland has not played a role in British politics at all really since the Good Friday peace agreement the only bit you really hear is about the assembly not running or occasionally about the DUP but Ireland really has become a big issue in British politics once again. It has and it's resurfaced in what seems like an unexpected way probably to most British voters. During the 2016 referendum, there was a day on which two former Prime Ministers, John Major and Tony Blair, both of them sequentially, very important in achieving peace on the island of Ireland and prosperity for the North, they stood up and did warn (laughs) that the Good Friday Agreement was something that rested on these strong economic links on a borderless existence on the island, etc. And it made the six o'clock news, it made the 10 o'clock news, it clearly made no impact whatsoever on the vote on the 23rd of June. It's almost felt as if Britain pocketed the fact of stability in Northern Ireland and prosperity in both parts of the island. It sort of pocketed that as something that had been achieved and no longer needed to be protected or considered. And this has been a horrible reawakening of what's at risk. I think also it's worth saying that the fact that Ireland has succeeded diplomatically in making sure that the European Union 100% stuck to its ethos of protecting the smaller member nations, i.e. making sure that Ireland was protected in Brexit, has really surprised and appalled some people in British politics. And there have been some very unpleasant reactions here. I'm thinking particularly of a quote that was given to uh, Newsnight's political editor Nick Watt last week, when uh, someone he described as a Tory grandee said, We simply cannot allow the Irish to treat us like this. This cannot stand. The Irish should know their place. I mean, you would hope that those attitudes had utterly disappeared from Britain. But unfortunately, the Brexit nastiness has reawakened some of it. 
Absolutely. Now, Matthew Till, you've written a lot about this from this perspective, and the whole thing is complicated by the fact that Northern Ireland voted to remain quite significantly, and the polls we've seen have seen that that has changed, whereas England and Wales voted to leave, and the attitudes have been shaped by that leave vote. But then on the other hand, you've got the DUP, who represent 10 constituencies in Northern Ireland, and they are propping up Theresa May's government, and they've taken an incredibly hard line that has made any kind of compromise very difficult. Yeah, exactly. Miranda was right that during the referendum debate and in the year afterwards, there was surprisingly, at times depressingly, little debate and understanding of the complexities of the Irish questions. To the frustration of some of us, I have to say, some of us were making those arguments behind closed doors. But then the election of 2017, in a sense, catalyzed and made those problems infinitely more difficult because at the same time that the Democratic Unionist Party was placed in a position of holding the balance of power at Westminster. And by the way, the Democratic Unionist Party, which has in many ways evolved its tactics over the past decade, but hasn't completely evolved the traditional core of the party, which really is as a kind of id of Ulster loyalist politics in Northern Ireland, obviously founded by the Reverend Ian Paisley. That bit hadn't quite evolved, but at the same time as they were given the balance of power at Westminster, the Irish government was developing alongside uh, European Union partners, this strategy for getting a legal guarantee in the withdrawal treaty that there wouldn't be a hard border on the island. Those two forces, if you like, made the challenge infinitely more difficult and we're still faced with them today. Yes, and this goes back to the joint report last December, which essentially outlined the first stages of the final withdrawal agreement. And in that, it said that there must be legal guarantees until and including whatever the phrase was, that there are future arrangements in place. And this is what led to the infamous Irish backstop, which we've heard and talked a lot about. And essentially, this means that there, in any circumstance, there will always be a soft border and how that has manifested itself is essentially keeping the whole of the UK in a customs union with the EU, which, to the annoyance of a lot of Brexiters, has made Brexit an awful lot softer. Exactly. And it's worth saying that the only reason the whole UK is in the customs union was because that was a negotiating request by the British government in order to win the support of the DUP. So the initial proposal from the EU was not that it would involve an all-UK customs union or indeed any real all-UK components. It was that they would apply to Northern Ireland only because it was for the purposes of keeping a soft border on the island. But really, I think if you take a step back, the broader, I guess, historical context and Miranda mentioned earlier on was the Good Friday or, if you prefer, Belfast Agreement in 1998, which was the culmination of a an approach to British-Irish relations and the Northern Ireland problem, which was, in a sense, swaddling Northern Ireland, which is one of Western Europe's, possibly Western Europe's last live contentious territorial dispute is what Northern Ireland is. And I think that was completely missed in the United Kingdom and Britain in the debate that actually, in a sense, when people talk on the continent about the Grand Projet of European integration, they think of places like Strasbourg, symbolic places that sit on the Rhine and have a history of being contended for in wars and having their their sovereignty contended over. The assumption, I think, in the English specifically, sorry to have to be direct about it, but in the English discourse has been that The United Kingdom doesn't have that experience that the United Kingdom, because it's an island nation, doesn't have that. Well, first of all, it's not an island nation because a bit of the United Kingdom is on another island, which is Ireland. And secondly, it does have, if you like, its own Alsace, its own Lorraine, and that's Northern Ireland. And in some ways, that's a very contentious comparison to make. But Northern Ireland is a contested space. And the whole thrust of British and Irish diplomatic efforts, really from the Anglo-Irish Agreement onwards through up to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 was to create a diplomatic framework in which Northern Ireland, though remaining in the United Kingdom until the majority wanted otherwise, its status was less contentious for the minority of people there who didn't want Northern Ireland to be in the United Kingdom. And that was a way of solving, as I said, what was one of Europe's last territorial disputes. And it's worth quickly saying that people forget, until 1998, the Republic of Ireland had a de jure claim over Northern Ireland in its constitution and its means of replacing that constitutional claim was creating a whole swathe of guarantees, assurances and frankly political and diplomatic underpinnings for the nationalist, particularly the moderate nationalist community in Northern Ireland who when Ireland was partitioned in the early 1920s had been drawn into a permanent minority so all of those things were undermined by Brexit and made more difficult to solve by the DUP. Because what was, I think, misunderstood, Miranda, was the fact that the EU has essentially solved 
a lot of the issues on the Irish border there because, yes, you had the common travel area going back to the 1920s, but by having both parts in the EU single market and the customs union, it meant you didn't have a border there. And a lot of Brexiters still don't really admit that key point about this. And they simply say it can all be solved with technology. It can all be solved with fancy new checks and what have you. But all of it is really just chasing unicorns and People like Boris Johnson keep saying we need to bin the backstop or chuck checkers or whatever the phrase is. But the fact is they still have not come up with another alternative that will meet the EU's requirements for the Irish border. So even as we sit here now and Theresa May's deal is on life support, the backstop's not going anywhere. And that means she's still going to struggle to get it through Parliament because of the view of MPs who hate this concept. Well, that's right. And so we're sort of teetering on the precipice of no deal almost because of an unwillingness to accept the history that got us here. And, you know, part of that history is that the whole of the British Isles joined the EU or its predecessor institutions on the same day. You know, Britain and Ireland went in together and being sort of jointly in the embrace of the EU and its legal protections and the prosperity that flows between all our islands and then across the continent has been of huge advantage to both Ireland and to the UK. And now that we're going in different directions, that is causing an enormous problem. I would just like to say that although we've sort of dwelled a lot in this conversation on the political problem that it causes, also it's a question of the economic impact. I've been reading Tony Connolly's excellent book about Brexit and Ireland. He works for RTE and he's got this fantastic phrase for how threatened the Irish economy is by Brexit. And he points out something that actually I had not thought about in this context before, which is, of course, Ireland suffered massively from the financial crash. The property crash there was actually unlike anything we've experienced in the UK. The austerity that was imposed in Ireland was unbelievably severe. I mean, we really have had nothing of that degree here in the UK. And just as Ireland has clambered back out from the financial crash... Here we are, and as he puts it in the metaphor he uses, then it's as if the neighbour, you know, just as you get your car back on the road, the neighbour gets drunk and smashes their enormous Mercedes into your into your car, wrecking it all over again. And that's what Brexit feels like economically to Ireland. Yeah, I think that's true, Miranda. It's also worth making the point in terms of some of the diplomatic dynamics at the level of the EU27. Lots of fairly intemperate, off-the-record, unsourced quotes about Ireland knowing its place, etc., that sometimes people react to, or regularly people react to very strongly in Dublin. I think, as various people have pointed out, one of the things on the Brexiter side that's been underappreciated has been, well, whenever one member state decides to leave, what will happen is that the other member states will act in the interests of the remaining member state. In this case, Ireland did a very good job of diplomatically illustrating why its core interests were being threatened. And I think one of, the, one of the strange things about why it came at a bad time, in a sense, for Britain was that Ireland, had, through the austerity crisis, some of which, frankly, was in part imposed by the European Commission, Ireland, in a sense, the Republic, had proven itself to be a little bit of a model student in terms of the austerity programme and imposing cuts that the Troika had requested on them its population, its political class had come through that and come out the other end. So in a sense, they had credit in the bank to spend with the EU27. Now, on this point, Miranda, a lot of Brexiters get very angry about Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, and they blame him personally for the backstop and for the direction of these negotiations. And an MP just said to me this week, you know, if Edna Kenny had remained the Taoiseach, then we'd be in a very different place and it'd be much more cordial. Do you think there's any truth to that? Or is it, as Matthew said, that the fact is it's looking after the smallies as they often think about them in Brussels? Well, they are supposed to look after the smallies. That's right. It's part of the point of being in a club of nations. That If you're more vulnerable and you're not a huge economy, you do get protected by your fellowship with others. However, they don't always stick to it. So Ireland has been extremely good, as Matthew said, at explaining clearly what the threats are to Ireland, to its economy and to its sort of political well-being as well in terms of uh, relations with the North. So it is a diplomatic victory for Varadkar, and that is deeply resented by some in London, somewhat unfairly. I mean, the point is we've chosen to leave a club and the club is continuing to protect its members. That seems to me a fairly fundamental thing to understand about the situation. And finally, Matthew, one thing that is obviously raised by this whole question is a united Ireland. And as you mentioned, in the Good Friday Agreement, it said that Northern Ireland's place is secured until there's a border poll and a majority vote to leave the UK. 
demographic changes play a huge part in this. There was an excellent FT essay on this point this year, looking about how that is changing. But you have to look at what's going on there, and you do think that a united Ireland is becoming more likely because of all these different things. Do you think that's fair? I think it is fair. First of all, it's extremely complex, and the next decade is going to be extremely interesting in terms of the politics of Northern Ireland and the whole island. And I hope the next decade will proceed in a way that is calm and peaceful. But it is definitely true to say that Brexit in general makes, I think, a United Ireland slightly more likely for a number of reasons. One of the most basic reasons, which isn't really so much to do with the tribal seesaw in Northern Ireland, is that in part the attractiveness of membership of the United Kingdom is due to the size of its economy and its influence in the world. Britain will almost inevitably make itself a slightly less rich country and a slightly less powerful country. Therefore, the swing vote, and there is a significant swing vote in Northern Ireland of bluntly moderate middle class Catholics, but also liberal unionists who will have a slightly less compelling pragmatic reason to remain in the United Kingdom. But that being said, you can never forget the sad, tragic kind of sectarian tribal history that exists in Northern Ireland, which is the reason Ireland is partitioned and the reason we have a Good Friday Agreement and the reason that it's very, very important in these discussions to be mature and balanced when you talk about potential constitutional change or the future in Northern Ireland. I think the thing that's difficult at the minute and the thing that's worth watching is the Prime Minister has pledged her unionism, has worn her unionism on her sleeve since she became Prime Minister of the UK. In a sense, she's entitled to. She's leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. And her party did one of the few successes at the election last year, was obviously picking up, in a sense, unionist votes in Scotland. That has also led to this alliance with the Democratic Unionist Party, which I do not think has been good for the union in Northern Ireland. Um, It's just not simply representing the views of Northern Ireland, particularly on this issue. Indeed. I think the thing that you're seeing increasingly in Northern Ireland is Northern Ireland was obviously founded on the basis that there was a unionist, capital U, majority in Northern Ireland and everything that went along with that. It's highly possible that in the coming years, possibly even as we speak, there isn't a capital U unionist majority in Northern Ireland, by which I mean a majority of people who vote for unionist parties there is almost definitely still a majority for membership of the United Kingdom, but that's a slightly different thing. I think the difficulty for the DUP is they find it very difficult to not assert a capital U unionist prerogative in Northern Ireland, but in asserting that prerogative, they threaten the majority for membership of the United Kingdom. There is a liberal centre, which ranges from moderate nationalists to liberal unionists, which might be changing its views as a result of Brexit, and they need to be very cautious about that. And I think actually the Prime Minister is aware of that, which is why she has started belatedly to calibrate her utterances on the backstop. I think that's all very interesting and it sort of leads me back to a point about one of the horrible ironies of this whole situation, which is that the Conservative and Unionist Party might be the party whose actions lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom because it's not actually just Northern Ireland. You know, in Scotland, David Cameron got away with winning the Scottish Indy Ref in 2014. Nicola Sturgeon's been very, very careful not to rush another one. But if Brexit goes ahead, Scotland voted Remain, Northern Ireland voted Remain. This will endanger the Union, undoubtedly. And that's it for our last episode of the year. Thank you very much to George, Alex, Miranda, Jim, Laura and our guests Grace Blakely and Matthew O'Toole. We'll be back in January to pick up on politics. Until then, if you want to see more FT journalism, then you can see our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thank you for listening throughout this year. Have a very happy Christmas and join us again for FT Politics in 2019. Selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 